Right now, Bet365 offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football for the next few weeks, with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We have our usual crew with us. I think we can say crew, <laughs> even though we're far too old for that sort of nonsense. Uh, in uh, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Good morning, guys. Hello, mate. You all right? Hiya. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you very, very much. Opening day of the season coming up at the weekend. Uh, very, very exciting. As always, been, as we said last week, that long wait between the end of last season and the beginning of this one. Uh, Fulham uh, at Craven Cottage. Uh, so we got to thinking here at Handbrake Off, what is the most memorable opening day of the season? Amy, we'll start with you. Well, uh, not that I'm obsessed with 1989 or anything, but um, in the summer of said year, uh, uh, reigning champions Arsenal started the new campaign 89-90 at Old Trafford. Uh, And a chap who nobody had ever heard of before, well, some presumably, but no one much at the ground, appeared on the pitch in full Manchester United kit and sweatshirt and started ball juggling. And he was a guy called Michael Knighton, who... um, try to buy Man United for 20 million quid. And part of that attempt meant that he got to kick the ball about on the pitch in front of the whole crowd for Man United against Arsenal. Uh, uh, Tragically, Arsenal got smashed 4-1. And tragically for Michael Knighton, his his bid to buy Man United failed. (laughs) True, true. I mean... I don't know if I could keep the ball up in front of 70,000 people, to be honest with you. I find it hard enough in front of my son laughing at me. What's your record, Stoney? I don't have a record. Oh, come on. I, I, I genuinely... Give I, us a ballpark. I, I don't know, a couple of thousand, something like that. <laughs> 25, I think it is. I think my ball juggling record slightly beats my snooker break record. That's what I think. So uh, that's that's the level I'm operating at. James? I'm going to ask you now. James, by the way. where are you on ball juggling? Terrible, absolutely appalling. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I'm actually slightly better at football than I am at ball juggling. It's something that I'm just useless at. Close control is is really not my strength. Kicking people is my strength. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, do you um, juggle? I mean, are you any good? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm pretty hopeless. I um, uh, We were inspired by uh, fellow athletic writer Stuart James, who um, uh, a little while ago got his who, what seemed incredibly young child, set him a challenge to do 100 keepy-uppies. And his prize was um, to get the new Swansea shirt, which is his team of choice. And uh, I thought I'd try and, do, try and do the same in our house. Um, we didn't quite get 
to the levels of uh, set by the Jameses. Certainly not me. I have to say, Stuart uh, was a was a player of some repute as a youngster. I wasn't, and I think my record's about seven. But I'm quite, right. quite pleased with that. Right. Keep at it. You get double figures <laughs> at some point. I think if I had a very young child and they go offer me a prize, I'd say, "Can I have an hour when you just leave me alone?" But you know, that's just a personal thing. Uh, James, what have you got? Opening, opening day. day. Uh, I've got a, ba- a bad one, I'm afraid, which is uh, the opening day in 2013. I don't know if you remember it. <laughs> that's the one I got as well. Yeah, I love Aston this. Villa. <laughs> You've Anthony taken the Taylor. pride out of it, Gazidis and all that. It was it was then, yeah, it was terrible. And Arsenal would have a summer in which they'd only signed Matthew Flamini, as I believe. And, and I think, yeah, we, we signed Mesut Ozil two days later and everyone was a lot happier. But, wow, as opening days go, it felt like... I don't know, the fans might start tearing the place apart. Can anyone remember really good opening days? Because it's a lot easier to remember bad ones. I'm also thinking Mick Quinn, for those of a certain age. Hat-trick for Coventry. At I remember memory. losing to Bristol City one beautiful sunny day <laughs> at Highbury in, I don't Come know, 1840-something. Quite a good one was in 2001-2002. Arsenal were away. They went to Middlesbrough. They won 4-0 on the opening day. And they looked Didn't Gilberto like... score after about five seconds? Yes, that, that, that one. Uh, Is it that and one? They, I don't know. I think Burkamp scored a couple for sure. And then I think, anyway, they looked like champions. And of course, they were that season. So that was one that I sort of look back on quite fondly. Let's pick He's... that one. <laughs> well, that's, it's interesting, isn't it, that all of us have gone for bad ones. Because like I say, I was going to have 2013, 2014 as well. Because what I remember about that day, um, aside from Lauren Koscielny, Giving away, did he give away two penalties and get sent off? But what I do remember is is the seething resentment, as you say, uh, James, in mm. that crowd. And but there was a little bit of me going, oh, "Football's back, brilliant! <laughs> Football is back. This is the experience that we're going to have more than most." I, I came away from there angry, but also thinking, "Oh yeah, I, I this is why I love this. Not losing at home to Aston Villa. Uh, Gabby Abbon Lahore got got one, didn't he? That game, I think." Mm. Um, but yeah, we've all gone for bad ones because I'm I'm sticking with 2013, 2014. Um, I can't even. I mean, even to be honest, also by the way, last season's opening day seems like about four seasons ago. So well, I, I remember that quite well um, for sort of stupid reasons. Uh, uh, it, it was um, August and uh, uh, Newcastle away, and it was so torrential, and the weather in London was quite nice, setting off that morning, and whatever shoes I had on they weren't appropriate for a sort of a <laughs> northern deluge and um, the, you only get to, to Newcastle and you get to the station and you sort of have to walk to the ground because it's not far enough to take any form of public transport um, but it was definitely uh, it felt far enough to get completely and utterly like I may as well have jumped in a river or something and uh, squelched into <laughs> James's Park and spent about 25 minutes in the ladies' lose with my shoes and socks off, trying to dry them under the hand dryer. I thought it was a quite inauspicious start to the season. <laughs> James, you couldn't spend 25 minutes in the men's toilets <laughs> at a game, could you? I mean, you just couldn't. There'd be too many people about laughing at you. At least yeah. in the women's lose, you have a little bit of privacy, I That's guess. True. Um, yeah, I remember actually, I, I know that game because I was travelling back down from the Edinburgh Festival and I met a load of very, very wet Arsenal fans on the train on the way back. But we did win. We did win. Which, it's uh, true. But what was really interesting is I remember sort of 
uh, sitting in the press conference afterwards and everyone, like the first question was like, like, Unai, you know, you, you had to wait a thousand years for an away win in, you know, the first season. This time you've got it in your first game and everyone was astonished that Arsenal had won away from home so quickly in the season because it had been such a cursed um, uh, pursuit, it, it seemed, for so long. And, you know, he did his press conference stuff. I actually, it's on YouTube, I watched it the other day just for a bit of inspiration. <laughs> and um, it reminded me of how difficult he was to believe as a as a guy and this is nothing against him as a person but as a as a manager and a leader even after winning the first game of the season away from home I remember sitting there thinking where where is Arsenal going under this guy it just didn't feel right even then even after a perfectly respectable start to season i.e three points away from home um, so yeah, it feels. It just was a reminder of how different it feels having um, a leader in charge of the and guiding the the club, who everybody seems to believe in. Handbrake Off is brought to you by Packed Coffee. It's a company that offers coffee without compromise, which means they source only the best beans. They pay their farmers over fair trade rates and they always get their coffee to your door freshly roasted. No excuses. Pack Coffee allows you to choose exactly how you want your coffee and when it's delivered to you. It's not your typical subscription that comes on the first of every month. You can get coffee whenever you want and you can pause, cancel or change your plan anytime online. Pack doesn't sacrifice quality for the sake of profit. Their coffee is roasted fresh for your order and ground just moments before it's shipped. They provide free and fast delivery with no hidden postage charges. And if you order before 1pm Monday to Friday, your order will be with you the very next day. Now, I should say at this point that I had some coffee arrive and I had no idea where it came from. And now I do. It's very, very nice. We really want you to try this delicious coffee. So we'll give you a discount code for you to get your first bag from just £1.95. Go to packcoffee.com. That's P-A-C-T-Coffee.com. Create your flexible coffee plan and enter the code HANDBRAKE at checkout. Our code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. This is fascinating, right? Because what we want to talk about this week, um, I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, we're looking forward. The season starts at the weekend. But, James, mm. the, the, the word that Amy used there, belief, um, and how it's hard. It was hard to have belief. And, and Amy, we will talk about your piece about Fulham away and, and Arsenal fans singing, "We've got our Arsenal back," and how <laughs> how wrong they were. But uh, are we believing, James? Are we believing this season? I think it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I think. Um, we be- I certainly believe more in the current coach than I do in the previous one. And I think there is a lot more conviction about him. And, you know, like he said after the FA Cup final win to his club doctor, believe in me. And there's there's a lot to believe in about Arteta. Um, it, I still think that all that belief in me is tempered by a realism uh, a little bit. And I sort of think as good as I think he might be as a coach, there's such a long way for Arsenal to climb. I mean, we were way, way off last season where we want to be so it, it there's kind of two sides to it on the one hand I'm optimistic that we've got the right guy in charge on the other hand I still think it's a really big difficult job for anybody 
I mean, we haven't been through a difficult period yet. Sorry, he hasn't been through a difficult period yet, Amy, has he? Apart from a global pandemic. <laughs> but. But apart from a global pandemic, but, you know, to be fair, we've all been through that period and continue to be uh, going through it. But you know what I mean? I he he well, hasn't I think struggled he, yet. To be honest, I think he has had a couple of moments that were very challenging. After Brighton out, away. Going the out of the Europa League yeah. to, to, yeah. to Olympiacos was one. And, and uh, as you say, I think the kind of cu that culmination of that sort of project restart beginning, which went so badly. I mean, the, the Brighton game following on from the Man City game and suddenly all the games in front looked mountainous um, and I, the response was phenomenal and I, I take a lot of positivity from the fact that that's quite a Wenger-esque trait sometimes with Arsene he would get to these situations where you felt oh things are looking very grave and at that point he would pick something out and get the club back on track I think he calls it resistance to stress something he talked about quite a lot and he said as a coach what you really need as a quality is resistance to stress so when everyone around is losing their minds and worrying and fearing the worst and social media is full of uh, nightmarish um, catastrophe scenarios uh, and when maybe as a coach you're looking at the players and you're hoping that they still believe in you um, Arsene had a knack of dragging them back from difficult situations year after year after year. And I think that Arteta seems to have a bit of that. Well, he certainly, we have, haven't had a, a great um, pool of circumstances to, to draw from, but that that one in particular, the, you know, post-Brighton, um, the, 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 the bounce back, if you like, was, uh, was really impressive. It's interesting, uh, it's a little connection in that Arteta, when he joined Arsenal as a player, it was in the immediate aftermath of one of those real crisis moments. It came off the back of the 8-2 the at Manchester United. And I know that when all the new signings came into the club, there were five players on deadline day. They were kind of expecting to find this kind of crisis-riven club, you know, uh, everyone in a state of panic. And it wasn't the case at all. Yeah, it but that's, James, sorry, that's because we were used to getting spanked by these big teams on a regular basis. I don't know if we were quite at that point. I don't think, I, th I think that was sort of one of the first, in fairness. But I think that, um, I, I think that Amy's right. Arsene had a, a real ability, and some would say it was a problem, but I think it was a remarkable ability to kind of stay the ship steady, even in those really difficult moments. It felt like a crisis outside the club so many times. But it never felt like one inside it. And I do wonder if Arteta might have, I don't know, taken something from that. I think, you know what, I think, I think that you're right. I think both those, both those things are true. That, you know, he did have a way of, uh, of steadying the ship. And you'd like to think that Mikel Arteta um, has the same thing about him. I think there were a few too many times under Arsene Wenger when we did lose heavily to the big clubs. And you'd think, how's this going to come back? But he did have a way of, of getting things uh, back on track. Um, I hope that Mikel Arteta doesn't have the same problems, really, because if losing to Brighton, and let's be fair, a bad performance, but in the end, after Man City, we expected we expected to lose at Man City on the opening game uh, of uh, Project Restart. It was one bad performance against Brighton, and then we were off and running. I don't think that represents the sort of crises that, I'd like to see him, well, I'm not saying I'd like to see him operate under, no, I wouldn't, but I, I, I've heard a number of managers say he hasn't had a major crisis yet, losing three, four in a row, and then 
we get to see what sort of manager he is. I mean, like I say, I genuinely hope it doesn't happen. But I, I, I think that he hasn't been through it. I mean, we forget with Arsene, with uh, Mikel Arteta, don't we, Amy? He's only been a manager for, I don't know, six months in total, if you yeah. forget the, the gap. It feels uh, feels a lot longer, doesn't it, because of the, it, it, it um, does. the impact that he's had. It doesn't yeah. feel like a guy going into his first full season in management ever. It, the, the Olympiacos thing is interesting because, you know, obviously the coronavirus pandemic created its own challenges and really sizable ones for Arteta. But in a funny sort of way, I mean, I think was that the last game Arsenal played before uh, lockdown and the no, end there of was a, there was a league game, uh, wasn't there? Was it not to be the game? Man City that weekend and it got called off? So uh, we'd have to check that. But, you know, it, it, in a way it would have been interesting to go from Olympiacos to Man City, a very difficult fixture that looked like on paper at that point. Um and see how he came through that. But nevertheless, he has done extremely well, I think, in, in very trying circumstances. I mean, he he must wonder what this management lark is all about. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, he's wanted it his whole career. He, can't, he probably can't believe uh, how, how difficult it's been in, in just, the last six months or so. Just on, on point of accuracy, um, I think it was uh, the Olympiacos game. Then there was an FA Cup match against Portsmouth. And then Arsenal played West Ham at home on 1-0 with a Lacazette goal and then right we had the restart so. so we got a bit so we got a bit lucky having some lower league opponents in the next game but we sort of brushed them aside fairly easily and then we were very very lucky against West Ham we probably should have lost that game and we sort of nicked it one nil and then we had a pandemic like I say I don't feel like he's gone through a, um, a serious uh, some serious setbacks just yet and uh, fingers crossed, it doesn't happen. That being the case, um, what are our feelings uh, about this season? I know we talked about it last week, but I want to go over it again. Um, we had a little chat. I mean, you talked about it in a piece about what does success look like for Arsenal? They've got to be looking to get back in the Champions League, Amy, yes? Yes, and, uh, you know, in many ways from that point of view, that, that goal hasn't shifted too much um, from what it's been in the past two or three seasons. But... I still think that the Europa League um, represents possibly the best route into that again, because given that Arsenal seem to have developed um, a very tasty knack of, uh, of winning silverware under Arteta, and obviously it's not been that long ago anyway since there were other FA Cups and so on, it's within the, um, uh, the, the framework of the group to achieve those things. Um, because getting top four is going to take leapfrog, leapfrogging four teams. You know, Arsenal finished eighth last year. You can't just kind of brush that off as a one-off. Yes, it was a particularly turbulent, difficult season. Um, but there's still, it's not, you, you can't go in and just say Arsenal can compete for the top four because everybody else is strengthening, strengthening too. Um, and... For all the, the faith everybody has in Arteta, as James pointed out, this is still um, a squad with some rough edges. It's uh, still probably not what he would ideally want to be working with um, to achieve bigger things. Uh, I'd say between four and six in the table is very uh, uh, possible, and that might depend on goodness knows what factors, luck, injuries, um, how the, the season develops uh 
so, but I think it would be it would be good for people to just have a bit of realism. There are new players to integrate who are young and new to the league. Um, there are possibly more to come. It depends who goes out the door. Uh, Arteta might be have with his coaching staff working on uh, fixing a whole bunch of things. You know, set piece specialist coming in is really interesting because that could make a big impact on uh, on goals conceded. Um, so there, it's, it's really hard to make a definitive prediction, but it I'd is. say between fourth and sixth and a Europa League finish, pro, preferably with the cup, would be pretty amazing, I would say. I mean, I always find it difficult, James, when you're, you're trying to make predictions at the start of the season when you don't know who the playing staff are going to be. That is a really good point. And I think how Arsenal do next season is in part dependent on what happens with their central midfield. I do think another addition there is really required and is seemingly on the agenda at the club. So hopefully it happens. Um, League-wise, I kind of think the same as Amy. I think what would success look like? Uh, Well, reaching the Champions League would be a real success, a tremendous success. I think on the other side of that coin, probably finishing outside the top six would feel like a bit of a failure, really, given that we are supposedly one of this big six and given that there has been some investment and improvement in the squad. So I think that is kind of the parameters, you know, somewhere between fourth and sixth. And it's, that it, would be fifth then. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sort of my hunch, to be honest with you. Ian. I, I kind of feel like Arsenal will probably challenge for the top four. And when I look at the depth and the array of options that Chelsea and Manchester United have, particularly in attacking areas, I think well, we, we might fall a little bit short there. But what do you think, Ian? I, uh, you know what, when you, up to the point when you said looking at the depth of Chelsea's and Man United's options, I was feeling quite optimistic. But actually, when you think about it, that they, uh, Chelsea particularly, have spent quite a lot of money. I think last season was such an anomaly. I genuinely do. And I, and I think we're a lot better than that. And I think we can challenge uh, for the top four. I really do think we can. But I would generally agree with you guys that our best. our best chance of getting back in the Champions League is through the Europa League. The problem with the Europa League, it's so many games, so Mm. many games. And I, and I, I think it's hard to feel confident about winning a trophy when you're ranged against so many teams, albeit quite a lot of pretty bad ones. Um, but yes, in general, I would agree with you guys. I think I think fifth place, uh, Europa League, and and a domestic cup. Are we not being a little bit greedy here, why <laughs> all of us? Because uh, you know Tottenham would kill for a season like that every season out of the last hundred, as far as I can tell. But yes, I, I think I think it's going to be tough getting in the top four. But I think can we can we not just remember, assuming that he stays, we do have the best, probably the best striker in the Premier League playing for us, and that should count for something. Yeah, it does count for something, but I think he needs a bit of help. He needs more goal scorers in this team. We need to see the likes of Pepe stepping up. We need to see Willian providing, you know, five to ten goals or whatever it might be. We need Lacazette to try and sort of maintain the consistency found at the back end of last season. I think the problem last season was there was such a reliance on a Bemi. Yeah. You know, that's a bit problematic. I think we need to kind of spread the goals around, try and introduce some more creativity and also improve at the other end. And that's where I think you can be a bit more confident. When you look at how Arsenal have defended in their FA Cup run, in the Community Shield, you know, maybe 
there's something sort of starting to click at the back and that would be a tremendous help in that push for a Champions League place. And that, Amy, that is why I, I do have a certain confidence about top four. I think our defence is better than Chelsea's and I think it's possibly better than Manchester United's as well. And I think a defence is what will get you into the top four rather than a sparkling attack. Interested that you say that, only in that you, you know, you have speak glowingly about our defence, but we don't really know, do we? I mean, you're... <laughs> I'm assuming you're putting a lot of that on two players who we've never seen play for Arsenal. No, no. I mean, y yes. <laughs> but, but no, what I mean by that is our defensive shape. What I watched in the last... 10 games last season with Mikel Arteta was our defensive shape and that's what gives me confidence. You know, the fact that we've beaten Liverpool twice, Man City and Chelsea, I think shows how good our defensive shape has been since he's arrived at the club and the personnel to a certain extent, I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but I'm saying that really it's about an attitude defending. It's not just about the back four as we know, it's about the midfielders and it's even about the strikers as well and that gives me a bit of confidence. Yeah, I know what you mean, Ian. I think the structure of the defence uh, is what gives me encouragement rather than the personnel. And interesting that Rob Holding now looks like he's going to be staying at the club for this season, having looked like he was on the way out on loan to Newcastle. They're going to be keeping him around. And I think that's partly because he knows the system. He, he plays that right-sided centre-half role quite well. Yeah. And he's a, a useful body and he gives time for the younger defenders, the new arrivals, to bed in. You know, people like Saliba, uh, Gabriel. Uh, and, and it'll be interesting. I mean, Arsen, uh, Arteta <laughs> uh, has got. Um, it's like calling your teacher dad. Do you know what I mean? It's weird. Sort of. I, uh, <laughs> he's got a couple of left-sided centre halves at this point. Now he's got two left-footers in Gabriel and Pablo Marie. And uh, Tom Werville actually wrote a really interesting article on the Athletic this week about what left-sided centre halves can do in a team, why they're so beneficial, and yes. there were interesting stats about. You know how much better they are at progressing the ball through that flank because they've got the option to open it out. So who knows? Maybe even some of the personal changes at the back will influence how we build up the play and go forward. And talking about changes at the back, uh, I mean, it's, somebody told me I was playing football last night. Somebody told me that Socrates uh, was uh, leaving, and I and I like Socrates more for his personality than his football. But I must say, I did trot onto the pitch in a, it's in a good frame of mind, knowing that he might be off. <laughs> Is that true, by the way? Is that true that Socrates it, might, might well yeah, be gone? Yeah, certainly he's available and Napoli have had talks about taking him. Uh, and there would be a fee involved, not a huge fee, you know, five million or something like that. But I think getting a fee for Socrates, not that he's a bad player, but just at his age with a year remaining on his contract would be a bit of a feat, really. So I, I, I think I could definitely be OK with that if that happens. Is there any, <laughs> is, I would definitely be OK with it as well. Is there any other uh, transfer news? Is, I mean, I mean, we, Lucas Torreira was one. Uh, Tayo just sent us a note uh, on the WhatsApp about Lucas Torreira. And, and I think he's worth discussing a little bit because when he arrived, he was the, ah, uh, oh, finally, we've got a holding midfield player. We've asked for one for the last 10, 12 years. Is, and finally we've got one but he sort of dropped away quite badly and he'd never quite regained that um, that level that he had when he started Amy yeah I'm I'm sort of a bit sad about that because I think when those first uh, uh, impressions of Torreira were so exciting but it's just one of those where it's just ne it's just not quite clicked consistently enough for him uh, I think a mixture of injuries uh, the the 
infrequency of him getting a long run, run in the team, um, positionally being asked to do different things at different times. There were times when he was playing at quite advanced within the midfield. There were times when he was uh, in, in front of the defence. There were times when he was sort of all over the place. And there was a brief period where it looked like I think Arsenal found exactly the right role for him to do, which is to, I can't remember who told me this, but I did write about it. Um, and it was an interesting observation about <laughs> the fact that he, because um, he's quite small and, he, you know, it t- he, to get around the pitch, often when Those he's playing against, you know, really sort of quite giant opponents, takes can take a lot out of him. And, and he's at his best when he's kind of doing little sort of short movements in a more constricted um, space and he can just nip around and win the ball and do what he's really really good at but but he was almost being asked to cover too much ground um, partly because of that lack of sort of balance in the midfield that James was referencing before but you know if he does go um, it would be with lots of good wishes is a really likeable popular lad and still think about some of those performances he, he gave in the World Cup for Uruguay before he joined Arsenal where he really looked like the real deal and it looked like a steal, I think, for Arsenal to get a player of those capabilities. Um, but if he does go, I think it doesn't disguise the fact that there is still quite an urgent case to be made for somebody coming into midfield yeah. to provide real ballast, real physicality, real um, stamina, uh, real mobility, real aggression, because... I, I, you know, feel feel like a scratch record every summer, going on about how that type of player needs to come in, um, and it, I still don't think that one of them is at the club. No, I, I mean, I, I think there are some serious issues in midfield. I mean, we we can talk about Guendouzi as well. It, I mean, is what's the situation with him? Is he uh, is he still on the naughty step, James? <laughs> well, it's interesting. He actually put a post up on his uh, social media account in the last couple of days, saying, you know, he'd been away with France on twenty ones. I think he captained them actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and saying now we go back to work at Arsenal. Um, the question is whether that's going to be as it was last season on his own. You know, with just the doing youth jogging. team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you know, the noises from Mikel Arteta suggested he's looking to reintegrate him. You never know if that's just positioning and they're sort of trying to make him a slightly more saleable asset. It was pretty clear at the end of last season what the coach thought of him. Uh, and that hasn't helped necessarily in drumming up a buyer. Arsenal were attempted to use him in a, a part exchange deal with uh, Leon for their uh, midfield playmaker, Jose Moir. Leon weren't interested in Gunduzi. So, you know, they, they've tried to use him as a make-weight in a number of deals already this summer. It hasn't worked. I think this is one of the fascinating things about the composition of the squad this season. You know, if you look at Arteta's decisions at the back end of last season, it was quite clear, I think, who he was sort of hoping would go. Uh, and they were the guys who weren't involved really at all. So Gunduzi would be one and Meza or another. And you might be in a position now where you can't actually move on either of those players for different reasons. And so suddenly Arsenal are having to investigate raising funds by selling players they weren't that inclined to sell. Maybe Emi Martinez, maybe Angel Maitland-Niles, maybe Hector Bellerin even, we read last week. Um, so it is this kind of curious situation where there's quite a lot up in the air because if they want the midfielder that they need, someone probably has to go. And are we, um, are we secure in the fact that... Um... Mustafi is probably going to be staying for his entire career. <laughs> well, do you know what? 
I think I am relatively secure with him staying and seeing out the final year of his contract. I I would have liked to see him leave for a fee, but I mean, lots of reasons that were difficult this summer, principally that he's injured. He's injured, yeah. Uh, and if he gives us a bit of experience cover at the back <clears throat> next season, I can live with that. Based on the way he performed, uh, you know, at the back end of last season, I can I can certainly live with it. He's a squad so, player. Some centre-backs have got to go. I mean, there's millions of them. Yeah. <laughs> he keeps finding them well, in drawers around the back of the training ground. Yeah, oh, is another one back underneath the cushions in the back of the sofa. Um, it's oh, two p. Oh, there's a centre back. Um, I, I just feel like uh, even it's very very tricky because three are currently injured, having had quite mm. long term injuries. Uh, but you can't realistically if they all, if they all become fit over the next two three months or whatever they're gonna have like nine centre backs it's just yeah. not workable um, yeah. it's not fair either but just I just want to zip in quickly on Ganduzi and what you were saying before is really interesting and I just wonder what it is from his point of view we all talk about what Arteta thinks and you know is he going to reintegrate him and is it really a, a clean slate or positioning what's Ganduzi thinking it, it's pretty clear I would say that he thought he was going off to something better this summer. Mm. If that doesn't happen, does does he have to reassess maybe how, how good he is in his own head? Or maybe I, I think mean, it's it... quite an interesting one because you know, is he going to be cross? Is he going to be committed? Is he going to be um, uh, maybe? T it's a bit of a lesson that you learn and you 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 come out of it a slightly different person with a different. Um, uh, a, di a different set of aspirations. And, well, and I guess his career depends on it, doesn't it, really? The way he reacts to this adversity. We started this podcast talking about reacting to adversity. There is no doubt that, that uh, Matteo Guendouzi has been through the mill in the last six months, has he not, in terms of his attitude and the way when he came back and what's happened with him with Mikel Arteta. If he reacts in the right way, we know there's a player in there. We forget how young he is. When he came, he came with Torreira, right? And we looked at Torreira and went, oh, he's the real deal, but Guendouzi's great, but he's still got a lot to learn. Well, he's still got a lot to learn. And if he reacts in the right way, could he be a fixture for Arsenal, James, in maybe the next next couple of years? I don't think many people doubt he's got the, the talent and the potential. Um, if, if that can all be channeled and harnessed appropriately, then he's got a chance. I mean, we're talking about the middle of the park being an area where Arsenal desperately needs yes. something. In theory, you know, he does have good potential. I, you learn in football to never write anyone off, you know. You never say never. Um, so maybe there is a kind of prodigal son, you know, homecoming story here. Uh, if Xhaka can surprised. come back, if Xhaka can come back, yeah. so can anyone. That's fair. That's fair. I can't argue with that at all. Harry sponsors Handbrake Off, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. And they've now released their sharpest ever blades and added a new lubricating strip for an even closer, more comfortable shave. The best part? They haven't raised prices, so replacement blades are still as little as £1.75 each. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. As a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover, 
by going to harrys.com forward slash handbrake off right now. That's harrys.com forward slash handbrake off. Uh, this is the Handbrake Off podcast, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone, here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Uh, as I say, every week you've been furiously writing away. Uh, Amy, I want to start with your piece um, that you wrote about the last time we went to Craven Cottage, which was in 2018. And this is the... Um, we played pretty well that day, did we not? Yeah, it's the, it was the... Um, the the highest point of the Emery era, arguably, uh, in terms of quality of of game, uh, and there was that wonderful goal by started and finished by Aaron Ramsey that involved umpteen flicks and tricks, uh, a lot of one-touch football, um, and inspired the fans to sing. We've, as you mentioned before, we've got our Arsenal back. <laughs> <laughs> Stop sniggering. Um, I'm not sniggering. I'm <laughs> laughing outwardly. Is what I'm doing. Yes. Uh, it just felt quite interesting because that was, you know, that, that, that at the time felt like some sort of renaissance. Um, but it just feels that with Arteta, there is so much more substance to what's going on. Uh, things, things that went well sometimes were sort of flashes or fleeting um, previously, but that can't help uh, this sentiment that Arteta is trying to build something on, on foundations that are hopefully going to be a proper platform for Arsenal to improve but with the caveat that those improvements need to be made across the uh, you know across the squad he can't just make do and mend but I, I think that he can produce a really good team if he's given the help this whole thing James about we've got our Arsenal yeah. back I mean I I find I find it a little bit ridiculous it's not that I don't like singing it I remember singing it at uh, at the Emirates once when Arsenal possibly when they beat Spurs and Torreira scored that goal and we all sang it there. But it's sort of nonsense, isn't it, really? Well, I think so, because also what's our Arsenal? I mean, different people, different generations will have a very different idea of what that means. I, I do think on that particular occasion at Fulham, I, I kind of understood why the fans sang it. And it wasn't because suddenly Arsenal were the Invincibles again or George Graham's team again or anything like it. I think it was genuinely just the feeling of going to an away day and enjoying it and having Fulham, a good time. Fulham, by the way, who who got relegated with a pretty low points tally that season. I mean, it yeah. wasn't, it's not like we were going to Chelsea and winning by that score. Absolutely not. But Ian is one of the most picturesque <laughs> Premier League locations <laughs> there, is, there is. It is a great away trip and Arsenal went there and battered them in a London derby. And I think it was just sort of good fun. Um, and at that point in the club's history and trajectory, there hadn't been lots of fun for a while. So I think I think I kind of understood it, even if it was absolutely wrong, if you sort of look at the, 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 the surface of it. Um, but it is interesting that we go back to Fulham now, this weekend, it, you know, in very different circumstances, a very different manager, um, and, you know, with a very different feeling about sort of where this team is going. It's going to be really intriguing to see how he gets on. Uh, and I feel like the team that we'll see at the weekend will be quite different from the one we're watching by the end of the season. I really feel that the short pre-season means that Arteta's pretty, gonna, pretty much going to stick with how he ended the, the last campaign. But I think as the season wears on, you know, we'll see new signings introduced. We might see a change in formation. Um, I think it'll be really interesting watching this team develop over the next you know, 10 months or however long it is. 
Do you think William will will start this game? I was thinking about of sort of how easy it would be to pick almost exactly the same team that he was finishing off with very recently at the end of last season. You know, um, mm. if we assume that uh, Holding will probably play in the in the back three and perhaps Kieran Tierney as well with one other if David Louise is injured. Um, and then Bell- Bellerin and Ainsley Maitland-Niles as those wing-backs and Danny Sabas and Xhaka as the midfield too mm. and Pepe, Lacazette and Aubameyang. You know, you can pick that team with your eyes closed. Mm. Yeah, it's the but, other position. But, you know, I'm just curious as to whether there'll be a temptation to bring in Willian and if so, where? Well, I, I sort of have the hunch that, a bit like you, that he might stick with the team he was using at the end of last season. We might see Willian come from the bench. Because I think to get Willian in the team, you probably need to lose the defender. You probably need to sacrifice one of those three centre-halves. Yes. And I don't think, especially if Luis is out in a way, I don't think Arteta's going to do that quite yet. I don't think he's going to put that on you know, Saliba to, to sit in a back four straight away. I think we're all agreed that that's probably what he wants to do in the long term is play a back four. Uh, but um, maybe not in the first game of the season. Uh, the other thing to say, by the way, is that in the friendly game behind closed doors, well, they're all behind closed doors at the moment, uh, Mesut Ozil played. So he's not gone yet, uh, even though possibly mentally he already has. But he played as well. I, can anyone see him starting on the, the weekend? <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm just asking. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I, do, I doubt it very much. So do I. So do I. I'm just asking the question. And Amy, your laugh is all I need for an answer there. Handbrake Off is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. You wouldn't want anything which wasn't precision engineered, would you? And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job. So you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer for you right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. Uh, James, you wrote a piece uh, about, uh, you, there's, there's been a, a series on The Athletic, uh, the Premier League 60. Mm. Uh, number one uh, is Thierry Henry. And um, we have been discussing the, uh, some of the positions of some, some former Arsenal players. Uh, but I don't think there's any uh, argument about, uh, about Thierry Henry um, being number one. Um, James, when I asked you about this just before we went on air, you said uh, he can talk. Thierry, he's a student. <laughs> he's a student of the game, isn't he? And not just of our game, by the way, as well. Because we'll get to that. But he um, he said some fascinating things. I think the opening bit that you wrote about how he was sort of he learnt about space from watching Marco Van Basten. I think mm. that was fascinating. Yeah, I do think that's interesting because we think of him as someone with enormous technical quality and incredible athleticism. You know, his speed was in some ways, you know, a defining characteristic. But 
it was brilliant hearing him unpick kind of, uh, you know, the intellectual side of playing as a striker and the way he thought about movement. Like you say, he learned from Van Basten, the way he learned from playing on the wing and he incorporated that into his game. The hours he spent on the training ground perfecting his finishing so that when he went through on goal in a match, it looked so effortless. I, I just thought it was really interesting to hear him kind of lay bare you know, the intellect and the industry behind the brilliance. And hearing him talk, you know, you actually understand why he wants to go into coaching because he clearly thinks about the game and clearly always did on quite a a deep level. And I found it fascinating that he said, you know, at a certain point in my career, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, he said, "I, I felt like it was kind of my duty to kind of reinvent the idea of what a striker could be to play with those boundaries I mean for someone to be applying that level of thought to their craft in any sphere I mean tells you everything about the quality of the person I mean in some people that would be seen as arrogance would it not but with him it's something something different well yeah I mean is it, it maybe there is an arrogance to that or certainly an enormous self-confidence but I think that's there in you know, the majority of people who excel. And I think a a self-awareness of what he was good at was also part of that. You know, he was able to say to me the other day, I didn't go and play in the penalty box because I wasn't good in the air. You know, I could hold the ball up. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I could hold the ball up, but not especially well. So I did the things that I was good at. I took players into situations where they were uncomfortable. And he was also someone who really looked at himself. You know, I tried to get him to open up on which defenders were difficult to face and who he didn't like marking him. And really his thing was, well, I I always just blamed myself. If it didn't work out, I looked at myself and I wanted to improve myself rather than worrying about, about them. And I think, you know, that's what you see in people who are highly driven and super highly achieving. And uh, that that was the impression I came away from the interview with of someone who is who was very smart, had a very clear sense of their strengths and their weaknesses and who applied that to absolutely make the best of themselves. Yeah, I I was just thinking about how Thierry sort of presented himself even as a a very young man and that fierce intellect was evident very, very young, um, that ability to think about the game. He had almost a a photographic memory for everything that was going on. If you you were talking about something in football, even when he was 20 or 21, he would remember the finest detail uh, and he would be analysing things constantly. And I think it was obvious, even as a a young player who, um, in that phase before he'd even become a Premier League icon, that his his intelligence thinking about the game was, was unusually high. Um, so it's interesting when you look back and you think that that was always part of his makeup and it's, it's, uh, flourishing in a different way now in coaching, but I'm not surprised to see that he wanted to go into this. I was only curious as to whether he would find sometimes it a bit frustrating if people couldn't do the things that seemed more natural to him to even with, albeit with very, a lot of hard work behind it and a lot of thought. Um, but I think he's always had that rare intellect when he thinks about the game and maybe that is why I mean that thing about coaching I mean myself and James were discussing it just before you came on air Amy about you know it hasn't quite worked out for him 
as a coach yet. I mean, if you think about Mikel Arteta, six months in, and he's he's already won an FA Cup, and it's all looking pretty uh, pretty good going forward. Thierry Henry, is it because of the, the reason that you gave there, Amy, that he's almost just too good a player? Because do do superstars make great coaches? I mean, I guess Johan Cruyff was pretty good at Barcelona, but. Does he find it frustrating working with players who are lesser than him, which is almost every player that, that we've ever seen? I really don't know, but I think one of the things I loved about uh, it was a clip that went around on the internet when he was, uh, I think, coach of Monaco, and he must have done a a press conference with one of his players, and as they got up to finish, the, the player didn't tuck his chair in, and Thierry called him back and, in front of everybody, <laughs> gave him the eyes to say, come on, do this properly in the... The, the the player dutifully yeah absolutely and you know that that high standards mentality um is something that is a, in in everything that you do when you're a massively high achiever and james talked to thierry about um the last dance and there's definitely a a, a sphere where people like uh like that exist when they're the best and when they're aware that others look to them. And I remember speaking to yeah, some of the uh, Invincibles players, uh, uh, you know, not inconsiderable talents in their own right. And they would say how we just knew that, like, as long as we did our jobs, like, if it was tough, that we had Thierry and we had Dennis and they would get us out of it. They would do it. They would deliver. And I think there was a sort of a, a sort of a pressure that sometimes those very, very top of the tree elite people have where they know that it's not just fans or even a coach that's expecting and hoping for them to be the difference your teammates are that's quite a thing to have to carry around even at an outstanding team I mean that's what when you look at a Messi or Ronaldo that's what they live with all, all the time that every single game everybody including the people they're working with on the pitch Looks is to looking to them yeah to just give that, have something beyond everybody else. And that was what was demanded of Thierry, and that's kind of what he demanded of himself. Yeah. And that's not easy. Um, but just, sorry, I've gone off, off, off topic slightly. Your, your comment about uh, uh, his coaching, I think there are uh, lots of explanations. And, for example, his, his time at Monaco, which was his, his first break as a coach, I suppose, in, in some ways, a not dissimilar situation to Arteta as a young coach going back to a former club, first job in the game, um, having previously been an assistant and, and, and learnt a little bit that way, albeit Pep Guardiola and Roberto Martinez are maybe not quite the same thing. Um, uh, but the, the Monaco uh, scenario that he walked into was a bit of a basket case club at that point. And... I think it's really unfair if people say, well, he didn't do very well at Monaco because, you know, the circumstances were <laughs> tremendously difficult. I didn't say it like that. Though. <laughs> I was just asking. There was no hint of churlishness in I my voice, I feel. I'm just making a, a point. This is not a specific <laughs> oh, okay. shot across the bows. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think he probably, it, it would have it stung a lot that that didn't work out. And I'm sure he believed that it was going to be different. And I think he was sold a slightly different impression of the club than what he found when he got there. And it all ended rather abruptly and prematurely. And 
that's very frustrating, I think, in a first job that you wonder if you're going to be tarred with a certain reputation. People are going to say exactly that, which is, oh, well, great player, but look, you can't cut it in management. He's got some credit but in the bank, though, hasn't he? The way, that he? the way that he thinks about the game is such that you, and you're obviously going to be a fighter if you're going to be one of the best players ever. Yeah. So I think he has a lot in his armoury and he wants to show that he can do it. And he could have just gone off to, you know, do media work or done other things in whatever he wanted to do in or out the game. But I think it shows a bit of strength of character and a bit of pride as well for him to have said, nope, I'm going in again and this is the job that I'm going to take. And the fact that he took a slightly complicated uh, uh, club um, in MLS, you know, not one with ready-made resources and sort of success on tap that, you know, it's a difficult job he's got there. Um, but he wants to kind of learn the hard way. He wants to sort of almost do his apprenticeship and show that he can do it. And and I think, I hope it goes well and that he will come back to Europe and be a coach and, and see how it goes over here one of these days. Quite. I must say that thing about tucking the chair in, it does uh, sort of remind me a little bit, certain fans of a certain vintage remember Brian Clough when uh, he had a, a player with him, take your hands out your pockets on... Right? <laughs> and all that and I, it sort of feels has a little bit of that about it so um, uh, yeah we're all hopeful uh, for Thierry Henry's uh, managerial career uh, let's have a song before we go um, James we'll start with you oh, can we start with Amy I'm really stuck this week <laughs> <laughs> you know what me too Amy what's your song we're going to choose uh, that whatever tune last week by the way that was a much. tune last oh, week very that. very love nice uh, on a very different musical um uh, uh, scene. Uh, I'm going to go in, t in terms of the transfer window and all these players that we don't know what's happening if they're you know, going to be more arrivals, trying to get rid of a whole bunch. Soft sell, say hello, wave goodbye. Like it, you know. I'm reminded of Squeezebox by by the Who. In and out, and in and out, and in and out. We have been the Handbrake Off podcast for the Athletic. Thank you to Amy. Thank you to James. Thank you to Tayo as well. We're going to go and wait and practice our keepy uppies now. We'll come back with different, bigger numbers next week. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. Thanks for listening. See ya. Mm -hmm.